Hello, robots, and welcome to this episode of Remedial Studies. I'm Hannah, and I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Rachel. And today, we're going to be talking about the wonderful uh, Discworld book, Feet of Clay, which is the third book. Is that correct? That is correct. In our remedial read-along series, where we talk about the watch arc of the Discworld novels. Yeah, it's been it's been a bit of a ride. So you had Guards Guards, which was all about like Carrot becoming part of the Watch, and then you had Men at Arms, which was all about like gun violence and unequal racial treatment under the law. And now we have this book, which just <laughs> dials it up to eleven. I, I will attempt, because you, you so graciously did this last week, I will attempt to give a brief summary. Um, Godspeed. Thank you. <laughs> There's like subplots upon subplots. The way you explained it to me just now was very good. There's a lot of balls in the air, but none of them ever seem to hit the floor. So it's 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 a lot. There's a lot going on plot-wise, but it's all juggled very, very expertly. Feet of Clay follows the investigation of the murder of two men. Am I correct in that? This book does start that way. <laughs> yeah, it it starts that way. It certainly does not end that way, but that is sort of the catalyst is the City Watch is investigating the murder of these two men. And the thing about it is that both crime scenes, um, especially one I believe was a he was a priest, but he had like he was a baker it's it's i read through it so quickly because i devour all these books but he was a holy man in any case um but there's no evidence at the crime scene i believe especially at his murder that anything living was there and it starts this whole investigation into a subclass of citizen now they're not even considered citizens that exist in Ankh-Mork pork that are golems that were made a long time ago no one's made one or so we think for a very long time but they're these clay beings they're very much like like the golems in the jewish tradition of they're these beings made out of clay that were given life through um magic or holy means and they do work for various people however that work is often um the sort of dirty jobs that nobody wants to do or that that they it kind of came across to me that they're that class of people that does the jobs no one wants to pay what they feel like a real person would need to do it right (laughs) right they're property they yeah they they are considered property and they do jobs like underwater or sealed away in a like a basement like they're literally can't leave the room or they're wading through like us they're in poisonous you know air or water because humans can't go there so they make the golems do it i know they mentioned there i don't think we ever see this this golem on screen as it were but um there's one that works with the alchemists who's like in charge of working with all the acids and stuff because it won't get hurt um or if it does they don't give a shit but the one the main golem that we meet who ends up confessing to the murders is a golem named dorfel 
who works at a slaughterhouse. And I found it very interesting. We'll probably talk about this later. The sort of weird wordplay, I have no idea if this was intentioned, but knowing Terry Pratchett probably, where he works at the slaughterhouse and he makes sausages. And that phrase, no one wants to know how the sausage gets made. (laughs) Yeah, that's got to be intentional. It's got to be a thing. Um, but o- over the course of the book, it's it, Dorfel confesses to these murders, and there's this whole sort of philosophical that turns very literal discussion between the members of the Watch. Is a are golems people or things? B can a thing commit murder? Because and and Carrot mentions this um, in the book when he's attempting in his very particular carrot way, to intimidate someone into giving them answers um, in the course of their investigation, where he says, like, you know, a thing can't commit murder. A sword is a thing, but you can't blame it when someone thrusts it at you. And then he thrusts it at And then he thrusts it at (laughs) Um, And Anki was just like, honey, (laughs) can you not please... Can you not be you for two minutes? <laughs> she does do that a lot. This she book, does that a lot in like, this book. I like that we got more of her point of view mm-hmm. in this book. It's a good counterpoint to Carrot because I feel like Angua is like such a like such a normal person despite being a werewolf. Oh, she's so Whereas, is. She, she's like his straight man if they were in yes. like a buddy cop comedy, which they kind of are. <laughs> right. But she's like, can you just be selfish for 10 seconds because like you're never gonna pick me over everyone else and it like it bothers her yeah she brings back that comment that carrot makes i think in the first watch book where he talks about personal isn't the same thing as important which is like a big thing for carrot but is something that really really affects his personal relationships um but we will get into that deeper because that is something i think is important to talk about so there's a couple of subplots going on there's the whole thing where the patrician has been poisoned someone is trying to kill him and even though vimes is like big mood he um is in fact he he doesn't actually want him to die um but it's the whole thing of who instigated that and it turns out to be all these guild leaders and these like people who are like in power locally but they're still under the patrician and it comes back into sort of a theme in the watch books where people want to to go back to what they feel was a simpler time it's very much make america great again even though the again that you're thinking of was never great for everybody it was just great for some and we learn a lot about vimes and his whole backstory of why he acts the way he does because vimes to me i think is uh, like I, i he fascinates me as a character because it's like we're seeing the typical lawman gets disillusioned and like stumbles into the gutter storyline but in reverse (laughs) yes was that patrick rothfuss that said that i feel like it was because i read pat patrick rothfuss's reviews on goodreads when i finished the books and from what i remember i think he's written like pretty sizable reviews as much as you can for goodreads on um all of the watch books i've read so far i think they're his favorite 
I could see that. <laughs> I can definitely see that. Um, but he 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 talked about that a bit and how that's very fun to read and I'm sure very fun to write. But a, a big thing with Vimes and how I think this book, we talked about this briefly in the production meeting, which should probably be on a shirt for how often I say it, um, is <laughs> two people in, in the course of the investigation and him trying to figure out, because he can't figure out what is poisoning the patrician. He knows it's something and it has to be something he does every day and all this other stuff. And in the course of that investigation, it comes out that two people who live in the, the very slummy part of town that he grew up in were killed because of it and um that comes out in the big fight scene at the end but the big question or one of the questions i feel like there's always questions that are posed in Discworld, and it's sort of like terry pratchett offers some answers but it's also really kind of up to you to answer them for yourself I don't know why he trusts me with this responsibility, but here I am. Uh, and one of the big questions, I think, is, and this branches off into several questions that we brainstormed, is what is personhood? Like, what does it mean to be a person? And what does it mean to be free? Because a big thing with Dorfel, um, to explain a little bit more about the golems, if you didn't read the book, why? I told you to <laughs> at the end of the last episode. Um, but if, if you didn't read it or if it's been a minute, the golems are powered by these things called chems that are kept in their heads. They're like literal magic words that are just kept in their heads. And the way to get them to be inanimate or as they start thinking about later to kill them if even if only temporarily, is to open their heads and it's hollow in the clay and you take out their chems and they become inanimate. And uh, when they interrogate Dorfel, Carrot takes his words out for a little while and they all kind of have this big philosophical moment of like this hollow thing that isn't alive, but it could, could be alive. And when they finally return Dorfel to the slaughterhouse because they can't like, like Carrot for lack of a better phrase, just kind of wants to see what happens, I think. Um, which is <laughs> yeah. how all the best police work gets done. But he returns him to the slaughterhouse and is like, he says something like, you own yourself. And Dorfel for the second, like, for like the second half to the last third of the book, struggles in his weird Dorfel way, to comprehend what that means as something or someone who has been viewed their whole existence as property. And that, like, really struck me because there's one particular line, I texted you about this and I was so fucking ruined about it, it was awful, is there's a particular line by Dorfel where it's what is essentially before he comes back to life and is broken free from the chains of the words in his head is uh, the golems don't speak they write on like tablets and he writes um on this tablet after he likes i know he doesn't write on the tablet he writes in vimes's notebook as he's essentially dying words in the heart can never be taken <laughs> and i'm really fucked up about it i don't really know 
what that says about either of those questions, which is why I wanted to bring it to you, because I'm just really fucked up about it, and it it says something, but I think I still need to work through what it says. Yeah, because, like, I think in a weird way, also a thing that we could probably put on a t-shirt, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like a soul thing, you know? Like, that's where your soul is. in a, Or it could be one of the places where your soul is. And that's what makes you a person. Yeah. And, or those things that you really believe people can't take away from you, even if they take away your life, too. I think it's working on multiple levels like so many things in this book yeah i i agree i definitely agree with the whole like him rebelling against this thing that can be taken away and owning that it can be taken away because there's multiple times and he i think he even repeats it in a way that if, if he could if he could speak i'm sure it would have been sarcastic to Angua because she's talking to Cherry Littlebottom, who's one of the newer constables we meet in this book. But she, they're investigating, and he, and she says something like, because she, she takes the cam out, and she, and Sherry is just freaking out, and she's like, oh my god, you killed it, and like, because it looks dead. And she, Angua says, you can't take away what was never there. And I, I think maybe why that line affected me so much, it's, it's doorful, regardless of whether anyone else ever acknowledges it, acknowledging that he has a life and that he has something of worth that the worth doesn't diminish if it gets taken away. Right. And that's, I think that's the thing about personhood is when you're a person there's something that belongs to you about yourself regardless of what anybody else thinks like you own your self and that your conception of yourself and your beliefs and your ideas and you have like this interior part of yourself that no matter what other people do to you they can't have that yeah and that's Something I think that Dorfel realizes is that once the words on his Kim change, that he can now possess part of himself that he couldn't before. And I think there's this moment where, it, when the words change, he has like an existential, I don't know if it's an existential crisis, but he has definitely an existential thing that happens to him where it talks about like the walls between him and the universe come down and suddenly like it's not him in the universe he is now a part of the universe yes i found that interesting even though i didn't really know what to think about it when i read it through the first time right right i don't know it's it's a lot and i think it's just like if someone else owns you it, it, you can't participate fully in in existence almost you're you're at someone else's mercy it's him putting an end to his identity being a discussion that he's not involved in 
Yeah, and I think that's important both in fiction and IRL. Oh, yeah. I definitely agree with that. Because Discworld, um, we've mentioned this several times over the course of doing this series, is a satire that's that's angry and guts you when you least expect it um and is very much grounded in these like real conflicts that are going on in the world and and it and it sort of is a a way to cope with it by separating it with that little bit of fantasy yeah but i i think this book in particular talks a lot about economic inequality and how that leads to interpretations of personhood as well yeah because we i think this is clearly illustrated with the golems but also there's that moment where vimes goes back to this street that he grew up on and they're poor but they're the kind of poor where they're really proud and everything is clean, even if there's no food. Mm-hmm. Everyone always has money for soap, I think is what he said. And, you know, they're the kind of people who are like, oh, I can't complain. You know, I'm not looking for a handout, but they're so desperately poor. Uh, and all they really have is their pride. And he goes back there to work on the investigation. And it's turned out that this grandmother and her grandson have died because one of the housemaids brought back what was poisoning the partition from the palace to their house. And of course, subtle doses of poison make healthy people very sick and they make elderly and very young people die. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. fairly common. Uh, And so they have died from exposure just incidental exposure to these things that have nothing to do with them. And that's really one of the evils of power is that it doesn't care about casualties. Yeah. Um, I think we see Vimes get real mad about that. And he gets a bee and a spotted about it. And it and it turns out Carrot is finally confronting the person who made... It was candles. They were burning candles with arsenic in the wick. And it takes Fimes forever to figure this out. And the patrician is just like, I, ha- I had to like let him figure it out. But he was taking so long <laughs> being just a jerk. I mean, but like in a cute way. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, Carrot confronts the candle maker who knew he was making... Uh, poison candles and, and tells them that two people have died uh, an old woman and a little baby and the candle maker says were they anyone important and that's so insidious that like for you to care that someone died they have to reach a certain level of quote unquote importance And it's just a comment on how, like, there are some people that just don't respect that there's an intrinsic dignity involved in being a person. Like, you don't have, there is no relative value, or is there a relative value, I guess, like, on the other end of that spectrum? I don't think there's a relative value, um, necessarily, for, like, people who aren't, like, despicably evil, (laughs) I guess. Yeah, I I think that's reflected a little bit in 
the vampire. There's a vampire. I forgot to tell you guys this in my summary. And his name is, wait for it, wait for it, Dragon King of Arms. Is it a name? Is it a job title? Is it both? We don't know. He's very mysterious and very, like, he's he is comically evil, but he's, I mean, he's Dragon. His name's Dragon, you guys. Like, it's crazy. But his whole thing, we meet him in the beginning of the book because Vimes, having married the richest lady in Ankh-Morpork, has to go get a coat of arms done. And that's what Dragon does, is he draws up and keeps these, like, big ledgers of what is essentially a... Um, who's who of the great and the good in Ankh-Morpork. And we see him a couple of times over the course of the book because originally the whole, there's a whole subplot about undermining the patrician as there always is in these books. Because even though he's like a pretty good leader, it, those people that want to go back to the kingship, they want to go back to the monarchy and all this other stuff, the people that want to go back to those times are always the ones who end up feeling like they're being disenfranchised, heavy air quotes. And <laughs> um, they originally are like, well, we'll just find a king. Like, And for a long time, I think, I thought they were like, oh, God, someone's going to know about Carrot, and it's going to be a whole thing. Yeah. No, dear listeners. <laughs> they were talking about uh, Sergeant Nobby, who is the biggest... I don't know what he is. He's just knobby. But he it it comes out. I, I It is never confirmed or denied if this was actually real. That he was related and was the last known descendant to the Earl of Ankh, who was a direct descendant of, like, the original family who the last King of Ankh was from. Right. It's, it's, it's hinted at the end of the book that it's probable that the Nobs family just stole a whole bunch of like royal tokens (laughs) and that's why he had a ring because he has the ring of the earl of Ankh that Mm -hmm. he stole off of his father's when his father when he was attending his father's deathbed uh and he didn't know his dad very well but it's it's suggested because he has like a tiara and like four lockets and like some necklaces as well as the signet ring. Mm-hmm. So it's probably fake, but it's convenient enough. That's a lot of what Nobby's side plot is made out of is this orchestration of convenience that does eventually backfire when they try to do it to Vimes. Because Vimes is like, what the fuck? Do you think I'm an idiot? Like, because Vimes is, he's, he's an alcoholic. He's a recovering alcoholic. And he comes back to his office one day and he's got this like huge bottle of like really good booze. And it like does the cut, the sharp cut to another scene. And when it comes back, he's like acting all drunk and shit. And like the guy who's the head of the Assassin's Guild is there. And at some point he's, because they're trying to frame him for what was going to be the murder and is now only the attempted murder of um the 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 patrician and um at some point he's just like what do you think i am like this is like i don't like clues i don't like mysteries this was so transparent and you could do better and you should feel bad right and it turns out how how we got here is it turns out the dragon king of arms 
was orchestrating this whole thing. Oh, yeah. Because, basically, he is in charge, or he has put himself in charge, more like, of basically a human breeding program. And it's it's the, all of this, uh, I won't call it democracy, but the lack of, like, you know, royalty is meaning that all of these, uh, all of these royal, formerly royal people are now you know, mixing with the uh, the wrong kind of people, the common ilk. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that just burned Vimes's biscuit because he's from, you know, like... He is the, the common The poorest folk. poor, right? And he married Sybil, who is, like, super rich and super, you know, noble and all of that junk. So... Uh, and of course, what what really is funny is that, uh, uh, and where the anti-regency thing comes in, is that Dragon King of Arms, I love saying the full name every time, uh, I know. <laughs> will not do a coat of arms for Vimes, because but the Vimeses already have a coat of arms, or they had one, uh, but it turns out that... Uh, Vimes's like great grandfather, maybe his great great grandfather, actually executed a king for being like the worst. And Vimes has to deal with like the fact that history doesn't remember his ancestor particularly well because in a lot of people's eyes, he just committed regicide, whether or not it was ju- justified for great great evil. Or not. Dragon's whole thing. Because it's a running thing in the Discworld books, especially the last couple books, that Vimes fucking hates vampires. He hates them. It is the one... He will not let Undead in the watch until this book. Because he just... he, He hates them so much. And it comes out as to why. Like, it finally is articulated why he hates them. And it's like big mood in some ways because it's he's so fixated on the fact that they f- literally feed off people and that in order to view something as a meal you have to again this is sold over and over in this book you have to completely disregard the intrinsic importance of somebody as a person everyone is just a little the, the little people below you and i think as as a person who has been and still in some ways continues to be one of the little people i think he would rather use his position now to remind people what being one of the little people is like and that's why you have to stick up for them even when it's monstrously inconvenient (laughs) as it often is but he he finally catches dragon at the end and he has one of my favorite lines in the whole book where it comes out that he brought Dorful along with him to this big interrogation scene where it comes out that Dragon was the one who was behind everything and he's like oh are you just looking for me to to get an admission out of me and Vimes is like no I had that when you looked at all the candles when you immediately looked at at the candles and Dragon kind of laughs at him is like well who else saw me and Dorful comes out from the shadows and speaks for the first time and says, well, I did. And Dragon is horror struck. 
because he Vimes and the Watch had the audacity to give one of the golems a voice. And Dorfel starts talking to him. I did enjoy how Dorfel was written where every word is a capital. Right. <laughs> I just love that. Dorfel says, it's like, uh, here we go. I have I have passages. We've gone this long and I finally have a passage to read. Yes, said Dorfel. He reached down and picked up the vampire in one hand. I could kill you, he said. This is an option available to me as a free-thinking individual, but I will not do so because I own myself and have made a moral choice. Um, and Vimes says the customary, give me a break. And Dragon says, that's blasphemy. He gasped at Vime as Vimes shot him a glance like sunlight. That's what oh. people say when the voiceless speak. And I'm like, every Discworld book, I feel like, has a line that it leads down to. And that was that scene for me, for this book. Yes, for sure. It just... Right there, sharpened into an arrow point, straight into the chest. Stake to the heart, baby. Um, But it's, I also did enjoy shortly down the next page where Dorfel says, undead or alive, you're coming with me. (laughs) And I'm just like, yes. Because he's in the watch now. Dorfel's in the watch. I, I do enjoy, I think, I think we got to see a lot of the ensemble. Pratchett does a really good job of really seamlessly integrating new characters while continuing to keep you kind of up to date on what's been going on with the old ones because detritus is in this book sergeant detritus now i love him i love detritus i love just how completely straightforward off the cuff he is he does not give a shit whatsoever um (laughs) and we see obviously angua who was in the last book but we have Cherry Littlebottom, who Cheery Littlebottom is her given name, and she becomes Sherry Littlebottom by the end of the book. But she um, brings up another interesting point that this book kind of dabbles with in, in some sense is that there are multiple layers and multiple kinds of oppression that comes from either a culture or society, and oppression that can come from when you suppress something within yourself. Because there's this, there's a whole thing in dwarf culture in these books where it, it's almost it's it's a gag until it's not like so many <laughs> things in in Discworld where dwarves typically all present in a way that humans in a binary gender system would see as male they all have beards they all kind of dress the same like it's even a joke that other dwarves can't tell male from female and all that other stuff. Yeah, you have to have a discreet conversation at the beginning of your courtship to avoid any embarrassment. Uh, embarrassment later. And it's um, che- cheery little bottom is enough of a gender neutral name to Vimes that he he just assumes it's male, and everyone assumes that she's male until she. Um, like goes to angua who doesn't really go in i think for the dresses and makeup thing so she she takes some stuff from her and like carrot freaks out because he was raised by dwarves and was raised in this society to think this way and angua finally has to like verbally slap him across the face and say what in the whole fuck is wrong with you (laughs) like she can do what she wants it's her face (laughs) She can put lipstick on if she goddamn wants to. 
Yeah, because um, Anguid deals with this on a lesser scale than Sherry does because mm-hmm. they have a conversation partway through the book that talks about, like, it's it doesn't matter if you're a woman in the watch as long as you act like a man. Yeah, there's no men or women in the watch. There's just lads. <laughs> right, and, like, I've been in that environment mm-hmm. before, and it's exhausting. <laughs> uh, and I know a lot of it has to do with, like, socialization and expectations and, like, it's baked in and not necessarily, like, you know, like, fundamentally we don't have to be like that, but, like, it is what it is. And it can be a lot to to deal with. Yeah, and it's shown over the course of the book that it takes a lot out of Sherry to sort of present the way that she wants to present herself and that it takes a lot even though it's like you could kind of see it as silly but it takes a lot of bravery on her part because that is so against everything that she's ever known Mm-hmm. but also like we get to see some of the cross prejudices and some of the attitudes that like Everybody in the watch has, like, something that they're just, like, this far and no further. Um, for Vimes, that's undead. And he's very upfront about it. Um, but for Carrot, it turns out that he struggles a lot with how to treat women in a way that both acknowledges but does not belittle their gender. And Angua calls him on it. Where, where he, and he does, he does the thing that I think everybody has had happen to them at some point where she, where he's talking about women and what women are supposed to do. And she's like, excuse me, like, I'm a woman. And he's like, oh, but, but that's you. And she does not have it. Not for one no. second. <laughs> and that's what I love about her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh. I love Angua so much. She's just so boss and she doesn't take shit. And and she's a great character, I think, because she deals with the whole double thing of being undead, but being like living passing, essentially. Yes. Like unless you know <laughs> she's a werewolf. Cause Sherry for a long whole time until near the end of the book does not know that she's a werewolf and Angua doesn't tell her. Because Sherry has these very baked-in prejudices against werewolves in particular. Because, um, and she admits this at the end of the book, she's like, you know, I never really knew for certain if my uncle was eaten by werewolves. It was always just a thing my family said. That's mentioned, Vimes actually, I think, mentions that at some point. It's like internal monologue, um, but it's to deal with him when he's looking at Dorful, when he's sort of inactive in the watch house and he talks about how wouldn't when when you hear these stories of these golems like go crazy and they kill their masters or they do something that like we perceive as silly like even though they're just following orders very literally as a way of a carrot has a theory that it's a way of rebellion um so if you tell a golem to like make pots it's like okay i'll make five thousand of them (laughs) <laughs> and I won't yes. stop because you never told me to. But he's he's like, you hear these stories and you you just want to believe it. Because there's something that's, that's so 
there's something that's so discomforting about golems and it ties mostly into how they how they look and how they're made how they're made out of clay they have these like staring eyes that don't blink they don't talk they just kind of stare and he says something along the lines of like you just get the feeling that they're taking notes and they're taking down names and something's going to happen so when you hear stories like that you want to believe it regardless of whether it's true or not and later on in that passage he um has this like little voice in his head that i think the phrase is that either comes to him in the dead of night or in the old days half down a whiskey bottle where it's like well maybe we 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 want to think that because we're afraid of how much we deserve it because of how they treat the golems yeah yes and that ties really nicely into something i would like to talk about yes, which please. is the uncanny valley and artificial intelligence oh hit me i'm so ready because one of the things you commonly see you know golems compared to is uh robots because they are uh basically automatons they're they're made they're not born which is kind of a complimentary question to rachel's earlier two questions what does it mean to be free what does it mean to be a person and what does it mean to be made instead of born uh that's, that's like our thesis questions yes. for this episode. For, for my inevitable dissertation, like, blog post. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, the, I mean, so one of, everybody knows by now, if you've listened to the show uh, in order, and if you haven't, that's okay, I'm about to tell you, uh, one of my big interests is robots in general. I love seeing robots in fiction because I think robots ask a lot of really uh, interesting questions about personhood, about like our ethical responsibilities, and kind of the weird way that a humanist perspective can be condescending to non-human entities, whether or not they're animate or inanimate. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that kind of I'm I'm gonna pick a bone about some wording here, and you're gonna be that person. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think artificial intelligence, in in its own way, is sort of weirdly a humanist condescension. <laughs> uh, because once you've given a system the ability to change itself, either randomly or intentionally you have the ability for something to emerge and i an emergent property will say such as intelligence and we you can see that that happens all the time in evolution and not all intelligences look the same and that's another thing i'm really into uh <laughs> i'm loving just this philosophically speaking but the Golem intelligence looks different than human intelligence. And I think a lot of things, a lot of fear comes from the unknown. And I think we're approaching this thing with um, artificial intelligence and robots where we, we have taken 
them and put them in this box of artificial intelligence, which artificial comes with all of these connotations, like it's fake, it's not real, it's somehow less than something that is quote-unquote genuine, and I think all of that is, is meaningless, really, like if a system can think, if a system is intelligent, it's flat out just intelligent. I don't know that there's anything artificial about it because it was made. I think is where I come down on it. Yeah, like it's an arbitrary distinction. Right. Um, I'd like to propose emergent intelligence, just if I can change the path of academia in any way through this tiny podcast with 100 people that listen to it, maybe. You never know. (laughs) It could happen. Uh, But, you know, I think you see that with the golems, is like people think that they are people... People fear artificial intelligence and the robot, you know, apocalypse and the singularity and all that stuff. And they also fear these golems for the same way because they don't have to sleep. They can work 24-7. And, like, that's very threatening to a human who needs to sleep and needs to eat and can't work all the time. And it, and it echoes this fear that, that humans have of being replaced by robots, um, by assembly lines and machines. And that's part of the resentment that people have for the golems. And, you know, it's there's so many things where, like, when you're made and not born, wh- what does your personhood look like? Because we talk about humans being born... Um, and and when you're born, you're intrinsically, like, you're a person. Like, you, that starts right at the beginning. But if you become a person over time, and it's, where is the line? When are you person, not person? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, this book deals with, like, the fact that there's a gradient, and it might be better to just be careful and make a person, like, a person is a person... Well, I guess it's like, at what point does that happen? And and are we going to start having problems in our society with artificial intelligence? Because there's a really interesting uh, news article recently where they had some chatbots. They were doing some research with artificial intelligence and chatbots at Facebook. And the chatbots um, developed their own language and started talking to each other in it and the researchers couldn't understand it and they shut the program down. And so, like, you know, we, like, guffaw and chuckle about, like, golems and all this stuff here, but, like, it's real. Like, Yeah, we, like, like, the future is now. <laughs> we could be making things that are could have some conception of personhood and how would we necessarily know like we've made them voiceless they can't tell us they have no way to communicate with us so it is like kind of sci-fi twilight zone like it could be now and we wouldn't know and will they remember and i think that is part of why we have these anxieties about robots and technology it's the same reason they have these anxieties about golems in the book is because we treat them very badly because they're quote-unquote not real people but how will we know yeah and and i think another thing that gets discussed throughout the course of the book is who gets to decide that 
Yeah, and I think it's, like, if you can question, like, if you or and some other entity, like, can can think, like, and ask the question, am I a person? Or, you know... Am you, I alive? Say, am I alive? Like, you see... And even when you, you, they teach, like, gorillas and chimpanzees sign language, and they start being able to communicate with us in a way we can understand, I think there's fully, like, evidence that they should be considered, like, people and have personhood. And it, it just makes me, like, deeply uneasy, the fact that, like, we may be doing something really unethical, and it's just because we're not thinking hard enough or we're not being thoughtful enough, I guess, about experiences that are totally alien to us and means of communication that are totally alien to us. And I say all that with the full realization that we are also totally incapable sometimes and in some circles of treating other people like they have personhood. Like we sometimes we can't even manage it with human beings. Yeah. Like no wonder we struggle so much with these other things. And I just, it's, the whole thing is like an ethical quagmire of, of like massive proportions. But we're here. Yeah, we're here. It's happening and we got to deal with it. Yeah, I, I think that those are all very good points that I struggle with, especially because I think we're so indoctrinated culturally. You mentioned this, and I'd like to continue that that line. We're so indoctrinated culturally to view anything that we view as artificial as other, and then to view that other as enemy. When I think of like big bad robots, there's two things I always think of. One of them is Skynet from the Terminator movies, and the other one is HAL 9000 from movie is it's i think is 2001 i think both of those have an underlying fear of what happens when something you make and something that you have this expectation of work for gets off its leash right (laughs) and the there's a couple questions that come out of that first of all why did you put it on the leash in the first place um (laughs) is the big one and and second of all there's there the the undercurring fear really is loss of control and that's in this book as well because the golems are supposed to be able to be controlled they're supposed to they can't fight Back is what all everyone right. always says about them. Eventually, Dorfel does, even though he's fighting to essentially save Carrot's life. He destroys this thing that he was a part of. Like they, the, essentially, what happened right. was the golems of Ankh-Morpork m- made a golem. They made him out of their own clay. Like they gave parts of their bodies to him. When he commits this horrible thing where he kills this person, which is something, which is in a nod to, to Asimov, I'm sure, and the laws of robotics, when, when he causes this person to come to harm, which is something that they tried to get him to not do when they wrote his chem, they all have this connected anguish of this thing that we made 
is destroying things that we, even if they don't necessarily want to protect them, that they wouldn't have wished harm to. And that's part of the reason I think Dorfel confesses is this feeling that even though this thing is its own separate thing, it's its own person at, at the end of the day. And I think that realization is what allows him to destroy it. It is, he is unable to not see it as a part of himself. Right. And which the golems show more social responsibility than most people. Oh, for real. Because <laughs> there's a whole thing where all these golems, because they feel, because they contributed pieces of themselves, quite literally, to this thing that they are by association responsible for this death for this harm they 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 destroy themselves in ways that are intensely disturbing right because it and it also raises the question like people go around saying like the golems are committing suicide and carrot looks at them very seriously and says well if they're just things then they can't do that and I think it's it's challenging. What what's it called when you can have two conflicting thoughts in your head at the cognitive same time? Cognitive dissonance. Right. It's that cognitive dissonance that we have about other people's personhoods. There is a lot of cognitive dissonance that goes on in in this book and in, indeed in real life. And I think everybody's guilty of it at least every once in a while. Um, mm-hmm. There's a part of that that's somehow so human. In a, in, in a not good way. Um, <laughs> but he, it, it's that whole thing was, I think what, what made me so upset about all of it was, like you said, like they're showing this social responsibility and, and connection of community that is not at all seen in any of the other communities that are in the series. And it's... The, the whole depth, like, they, 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 like, scream all the time, like, clay of my clay, thou shalt not kill. And there's a big moment in, in, um, in Dorfel sort of coming to understand what owning himself means and all this other stuff. Because one of the big words, one of the big phrases that's, I think, in all of the golems, chems, and it's one of the things that they included when they made this new golem is thou shalt not kill. Mm-hmm. And he's like, when you own yourself, when you accept and take responsibility for that personhood, it stops being thou shalt not kill and I will not kill. Which is such a powerful, like, it's like one pronoun, but it it's such a, ugh, that killed me too. It, it's a, I, I don't even know. Right. And the thing, the reason that their golem went all crazy they, so they made this golem, and they they made themselves a king. And they put basically all of their hopes and dreams on this poor golem's kin, and they put it in his head, and it went crazy, and it killed the priest that helped them ride it, and it killed the museum owner who let them bake the clay in a, for it in his bread oven. Mm-hmm. And... And so it, the the golem turned on them because they were his creators. And also he had all this stuff in his head about, like, needing to be their king, but also, like, needing to lead them to freedom. And, like, how 
all these paradoxes that they wrote in, not thinking that they were paradoxes, and the paradox of needing a king to be free is something that Vimes, like, go makes Vimes crazy too, but in, like, a I'm going to serve justice because you people don't even understand what you need <laughs> kind of way, and very Batman-esque way, it but it, it makes this golem, like, snap. And it's just, most of them aren't screaming out loud. They're writing on their tablets, you know, clay of my clay. Yeah. Shame, you know, whatever. And then basically killing themselves in horrific industrial accidents. Um, and it's just a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. There was one more thing that Dorfel said that I wanted to talk about before it is maybe time to wrap up and it is a uh, one of the last conversations he has with vimes so he says to vimes as they're sort of strolling along i wish to ask you a question said the golem yes i smashed the treadmill but the golems repaired it why and i let the animals go but they just milled around stupidly some of them even went back to the slaughter pens why welcome to the world constable thorful is it frightening to be free? You say to people, throw off your chains, and they make new chains for themselves. Oof. I can see why. Freedom is like having the top of your head opened up. Oh. It's so much, Anna. It's so much. I can't. Because it's true. I think I think the reason I always end up shouting it's so much whenever we do episodes like this is that it it is so fundamentally true of of so many people because that particular I think that line especially calls back to a sentiment that was sort of repeated throughout the whole um overthrowing the patrician subplot which was what people think they want out of their government versus what they actually do. And Vimes comes to the conclusion that what he thinks people actually want is for, when, when things are going well, of course, regardless of if things could be exponentially better, but they could also be exponentially worse, when things are acceptable, what people really want is for tomorrow to be like today. Regardless of who's doing it, regardless of what's going on, they want their lives to continue in a way that they view as normal. And for a lot of the people in Ankh-Morpork, that concept is incompatible with the idea of true freedom. Real talk. <laughs> and it's... It's, it's a lot. Because freedom, and I think Dorfel understands this as a person who's never had it. Freedom is a responsibility. Not to sound like Captain America, but freedom is a responsibility. And it's a responsibility for yourself and for your community and for all these lives and these people that you touch. Because when you own yourself, you own all, all of it. You own the good and the bad, both in what you are and what you do. And that is a terrifying concept. Even, like, just thinking about it, I'm like, we're going to back away from this existential crisis. Because it's, <laughs> it's a lot. It, it, it's, it's like, I always feel like this, and this was, like, a, 
all caps Tumblr post I saw like two months ago. In order to experience the joy of love, we must submit to the horror of being known. And it it's... That being known also is you understanding and knowing yourself. And I think there a lot of the conflict in this book, both for the kind of frivolous interpersonal stuff that happens to like the big moral and ethical questions that it brings up, are people who refuse to take on that responsibility to its fullest and most terrifying extent. All right, robots, that's going to wrap us up for this episode of Remedial Studies. I hope you enjoyed uh, you enjoyed yourselves. These are my favorite episodes to record because I always, always come to the table with way too many things to say. Some of them get, get left on the cutting room floor, but it's always so, so much fun to have these conversations. This is part of the reason why we started this show. And I hope you enjoy being our invisible third person on the Skype call. And even though you cannot speak to us, we know you're there. Um, if you would like to get in touch with us on Twitter, we are at Remedial Studies. If you'd like to find us on Tumblr, where I cross-post all of our um, episodes, it is remedialstudiespodcast.tumblr.com. We're also available via email, um, remedialstudiespodcast um, at gmail.com. Next time, we are going to be uh, continuing this book train and talking about a book I have been very, very anxious to read, and I'm very excited to dive into it this weekend, Children of Blood and Bone by Tomi Adeyemi. Um, So that's what we're going to be talking about next time. Hannah, who do we have for our indie spotlight this week? Our indie spotlight is my favorite webcomic, uh, Gunner Krieg Court, which is kind of hard to explain, but it's basically what if you went to a magic technology school and there were a bunch of psychopomps just messing stuff up all the time? What if that was a thing? So I really love it, and it's one of those where the art really developed over time and just became like stunningly beautiful and I don't know what I did to deserve that kind of awesomeness. It's by a guy called Tom Sedell. You can follow him on Twitter at Gunner Craig, which is G-U-N-N-E-R-K-R-I-G-G. And the comic name is spelled the same and it's GunnerCreekCourt.com. Uh and there's like a ton of comics and you can like buy merch and coyote the trickster god is like a main character and it's a good time it's a good time i am very excited to get into that i am excited to read children of blood and bone do you think we're done for the day here hannah i think we are all right well until um next time robots you will not see us we will not see you but you will hear us next time bye bye robots